said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Mike Browning. Well, people, it's wonderful to be here to worship God today. I'm going to talk about who is the greatest. Uh, before we do, I'd like to just take a moment to pray. I appreciated your prayer, Lynn, but the preacher has to pray. Father in heaven, we just want to ask that your Holy Spirit might be here today and that you'll touch the words that this preacher um, tells and says and everyone who's hearing and every heart. Lord, open us to your spirits moving in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, those of you who are my vintage will remember Muhammad Ali, or otherwise known as Cassius Clay, who was the world heavyweight boxing champion. Amen. And you may remember what his catch cry was. Yeah. What was it? I am the greatest. That's right. His catch cry was, I am the greatest. And uh, he was a great fighter, there's no doubt about it. Everybody wants to be the greatest. The school that I went to, now I went to a grammar school in Launceston in Tasmania, and the whole notion of I am the greatest pretty much epitomised the, the mentality of the school that I went to. And um, you had to be the best at something. Now, the problem with me was that I wasn't the best at anything. And I was an average student, wasn't much of an athlete. The only thing I was any good at, believe it or not, was boxing. And even then, I wasn't the best. And so I had no real claim to fame, folks, at all. But the world is absolutely obsessed by being the best. The best athlete, the best looking, the slimmest, the fittest, the most muscly. And it just goes on, doesn't it? That's the world we live in. It's a very competitive world. And it's not helpful. And I'm going to talk about that this morning. Um, you know, Alexander the Great, a lot of stories are told about this man. He did a lot of crying in his time, um, most for the wrong reasons. One day he listened to a lecture on the massive number of worlds in space. So they must have had some idea back in his day, the Persian Empire, BC. And the reason he wept because he heard that there were all these worlds in the universe and he didn't even rule one of them. And I'm thinking, you poor man. You know, <laughs> that's amazing, isn't it? People want to be the best, the greatest, the winner. I don't know if you've heard of Lance Armstrong. Did you follow, do you follow cycling? He was seven times the, uh, the winner of the Tour de France. And so he was quite a cyclist. But finally he got sprung for taking performance-enhancing drugs. And so he was stripped of all his seven titles. And Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey interviewed him. And uh, it all came out the whole sorry tale. And this is what he said. I was trying to win at all costs at all costs. And so the winner became a gigantic loser. And uh, this concerns me a great deal. Why does winning become everything for people? 
Why do you have to be better than somebody else? Yet my grandson came home from school yesterday with a really interesting little brochure. It was like made up like a, 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 um, a challenging thing to do. And it says, you may not be the best student. Isn't it interesting, this whole thought that I've been working on for some time. You may not be the best athlete. You may not be the best at anything. But you can be kind. You can be generous. You can be caring. I thought, these are the right principles. The world has got it all wrong, dear friends. Why does winning become everything? It has to do some, to some extent with the way we parents talk to our children. Um, Children observe how their adults relate to the way they get on in life. Now, we've all been a child at one point in time. Um, if, we, if, if we as parents are annoyed because our child misses a goal playing a game of sport at school, um, if they don't seem to do as well in class as some of the other kids, if we find that hard to cope with, the children pick that up, don't they? and realise they have to be winners. Well, of course, they don't have to be winners because you can never be the best at anything. There'll always be somebody who's better than you at whatever you have in mind to do. Everybody wants to be the best. I wonder if you could take out your Bibles for a moment and we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. And this is what Paul is writing about. He's writing about being the best at running, believe it or not. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Well, there can be only one winner, of course. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, he's making a comparison between sports and running the Christian race, right? And this is what he goes on to say. Um, verse 25, Everyone who, is, who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Just hold it there for a moment. They make a change in their entire lifestyle just so they can win an, a perishable crown. What amazes me, even today, you know, someone might win at some sport or win at some great event, but by the next year, is anybody thinking about that? No, they've forgotten all about that. They're watching what happens this year. Folks, it doesn't last if that's where we put our energies and our stresses. And he calls it a perishable crown. But, you know, we're running a race a different kind for a crown that does not perish, an imperishable crown. I'm glad about that. Now, I want to mention something right here that concerns me and has done for some time. Um, and that is this. In so many families, one side of the family considered themselves a cut above the other side of the family. Have you noticed that? It happens so often, it's just incredible. And I have to tell a story on my own family here. Now, my father's name was Browning. My mother's name was Atkins. And they grew up in the Devonport region, my mother's region, uh, family, the Devonport region of Tasmania, more or less the north. And they were quite successful in farming. They were farmers and they, uh, they ran farms successfully. My father's family, on the other hand, were also in farming but they had a habit of going spectacularly broke. 
And so the Atkinses thought they were much better than the Brownings. As a matter of fact, my, my grandfather went broke. They were living in England and he went broke and lost everything, family, farm and the lot. So they came out to Australia to make a new start, having lost everything back in the old country. And so they set up here. And I, we only had one member of the family apparently who had any money. And she was my great aunt, Peter. And so she grubstaked my grandfather, that is she provided him with the money to start up another farm down the south of Tasmania, which alas also went spectacularly broke. And so what did my grandfather do? Well, he joined the Anglican ministry after that and perhaps that's what he should have done in the very first place. Now some members of my family have inherited this predilection for going broke. Praise the Lord, not me. But too many of us have, and I won't bore you with the details. If that's a problem in your family, get some help, people. Talk to somebody who knows how to handle money. That's a sensible thing to do, isn't it? Do you know, I actually have a relative who changed their name by deed poll from their father's name, which they inherited, to their mother's name. Different line of the family altogether on the same basis because the mother's family was far more important and better than the dad's side of the family. Is this nonsense? Folks, it's crazy. It's absolute nonsense indeed. You know, the Bible is full of intriguing marriages, isn't it? I'd like us to talk about one for a moment. There was a, an Israelite chappy named Salmon who married a wild lass from Jericho whose name was Rahab. Thank you. Her name was Rahab. And they're a very interesting family, actually. And I'd just like to quickly turn back to that story. It's Joshua mentions it. Joshua chapter 6 and verse 25. And do you remember how Joshua led the people of Israel as they were making their entry into, Egypt, into Israel, into Palestine? And they, remember, they went to war with Jericho and they sacked Jericho. But they didn't sack, they didn't get rid of all the people because it says in verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab, the harlot. She was a prostitute, folks. Her father's household and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day when this was written because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. So she was a Canaanite and she lived in Israel after this because of her faithfulness to help the people. And I'm thinking about this, you know, um, I don't guess there are too many girls growing up who plan to be call girls as they get older. I don't reckon it happens too often, if at all. People get into corners. And I wouldn't be surprised if Rahab was in this business because that was the only way she could maintain her whole family. Because remember, her whole household, which probably includes her parents and everybody else, lived with her. And she sustained them all in this particular manner. Anyhow, to get on with the story, she married Salmon. And they had a son named Boaz. Now, Boaz is an interesting character because Boaz married a Moabite lass named Ruth. Thank you. Isn't that interesting? He married Ruth, and they had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse who was the father of King David. Isn't that interesting? All in this particular line. 
And when I go thinking back a bit to, um, to Boaz, you know, the son of Rahab, and I'm thinking something good must have really happened in her life, don't you think? She must have really found the Lord because they had a very fine man in Boaz as their son, she and Salmon. And, you know, I've often thought, what did the children of Rahab, what did they say about their mother's side of the family? That would be an interesting thing. Hopefully they appreciated the woman that she'd become. And, uh, and I have every sense that that's the way it was. Rahab wasn't the only lass who had a, an unseemly past to make a very prominent part in Israel. Isn't that true? Um, if you look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, there's, and I have a reason for sharing these thoughts with you, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, which comes right after Daniel, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, talks about Hosea the prophet. God actually instructed a Hosea to go and marry a girl of ill repute. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord began to speak by Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, first, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and he actually bought his wife in the slave market. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? What sort of man was he and what sort of a woman was she? And I'm thinking, wow, God can do amazing things, can't he? Of course, the illustration was powerful, wasn't it? Because the illustration was, this is what Israel is doing. But you can change that. This is not a... This is not a depressing um, vision that God is giving us here. He's saying to Israel, just like this woman can become a respectable woman again, so Israel can become respectable followers of Jesus again, followers of God. And he's trying to appeal to them this way. But these were real people. And God was doing amazing things. What did their children think? What did Hosea's and Gomer's children think? say about their mother's side of the family. And you begin to realise, dear friends, that we put the value on the wrong things in life, don't we? A culture, our culture certainly puts values on the wrong thing. But um, when you think about it, how crazy is it for one sinner to think themselves a cut above another sinner? That is so unbiblical. One thing the Bible is very clear of, and I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We need to look at some scriptures now that illustrate a very important point. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And here, Paul makes a very simple, plain, straightforward statement. And he's not the first prophet to say this. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a single person here who is not a sinner in company with every other human being who has never lived on this planet except for one, and that's the Son of God himself. The rest of us have one thing in common, we're all sinners. And that should make us very, very patient and tolerant with each other, shouldn't it? When we recognise that thing. So that's something that equalises all of us. Everybody has this problem. It manifests in varying ways in each individual, But nonetheless, we're all sinners and we all have our struggles in various areas. In Romans chapter 5, which happens to be the same page in my Bible, Romans chapter 5 verse 10, he goes on to say this. 
when we were enemies, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Folks, we were reconciled when we were enemies. Well, let's face it, you only need to be reconciled to people that you fall out with. And we had fallen out big time from God and we were reconciled. We were enemies. Have you ever shared with somebody about the commandments of God and they say, and I had this said to me just recently, don't tell me what to do. I thought, well, that's interesting. Talking to God, not to me, by the way. Don't tell me what to do. Um, there's something in us that rebels against God naturally. So God has to work a miracle in our lives to change that around. There's something else that equalizes us, folks. And it's back in Malachi, last book of your Old Testament. Malachi and chapter 2 and verse 10. I like this. Have we not all one father? Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father, referring to God? Has not one God created us all? So why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? He says, why do you mistreat each other? Are we not all the children of one father? Is that as nice a thought to you as it is to me? We have one creator God who made us all. And he made us all the same in that sense. Acts chapter 19, he makes it clearer still. Acts chapter 19 and verse, sorry, Acts chapter 17, not 19. Let's read that. Acts 17 verse 26. This is Paul. The apostle Paul is preaching to the uh, Greeks in Athens and he's preaching about the unknown God that they had an inscription to. And he says this about him. Verse 26. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? All of us, dear friends, are the same. All have equal value. And he has determined their pre-appointed times, that is the time of their greatness and otherwise, and the boundaries of their dwellings, even the boundaries of the nations God has appointed too, which I find very fascinating indeed. So all of us are related. All of us are the children of one father, which I find exciting. So that's why in John chapter 3, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, he's talking about his family here on earth. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's also a tragic fact that most cultures think themselves are cut above the rest. That's interesting, isn't it? And it doesn't matter who you are, that pressure is there. We should resist that because as believers, we don't believe that, do we? As believers, we recognise the oneness and the brotherhood of humanity. Now, there's something else that we have in common. I'd like you to go across to the first letter of John, if you would, please. The first letter of John, chapter 2... Verse 2. Now, don't forget I'm building all this time on the fact that the world believes in being the best. 
and being better than others and winning over others. And we're recognising here the tremendous oneness of humanity, that we are one children of one heavenly Father. Now, here's what he says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. Talking about Jesus, verse 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father. That is one who intercedes on our behalf with God. Then he says, and verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That is, he paid the price for our sins. And then watch what comes next. And not for ours only, that is not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, dear brothers and sisters, the sins of every single human being that would ever live on this planet were placed upon him. No wonder he died in such a short period of time despite being strengthened by his father for the ordeal. And I just think that is incredible. Now here's a question I want to pose this morning. The question is this. Does this mean that every person therefore is automatically saved? That's what it says. The sins of the whole world were paid for on the cross of Calvary. So is everybody saved automatically? Clearly not. Clearly not. In John chapter 3, verse 16, that we read a moment ago, it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, who died on the cross, that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And there's the dividing line. Believing in him. Actually, and I should make this clear right now, while Jesus paid the price for every sinner's sin, atonement, full atonement was not made for every sinner. Now you may remember that in the Old Testament sanctuary, and this was such a very interesting thing, the Old Testament sanctuary was a demonstration of what God is doing in heaven for our salvation. Now, you remember that when a person had sinned and they knew that they had to come to God and confess this sin, they would come and they would bring along an animal sacrifice. Sometimes it was a lamb, sometimes it was a goat, sometimes it was a, 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 a cattle, and even birds for those who were too poor for anything else. They brought along their sacrifice. Okay, so let's imagine it's you or me and you bring along your lamb. And as you come into the sanctuary there in Jerusalem, there were many priests on duty, and a priest would meet you. And you and he would go alongside somewhere on your own. You'd take the lamb with you. Then you would put your hands on the head of this lamb, and you would confess your sins over the head of this lamb, and then you would cut its throat. Now, I'll put it to you, that would be a tremendously difficult thing to do. Has anybody ever seen an animal slaughtered? Yes, some of you have. I have. Remember as a boy watching it happen, and it was a sheep as it turns out. When my mother had her fourth baby, she farmed us kids out to friends, and I went to stay on a farm while she was in hospital having the baby, and we watched the, I watched this lamb being slaughtered for the table. And uh, I both wanted to watch and didn't want to watch. 
I was kind of nervous to watch, but I couldn't turn away. And I saw it happen, and it was pretty awful, let me assure you. No, no need for any details. Um, and you cut the animal's throat. It was an awful experience. Now, the priest would catch some of the blood from the animal that had just been sacrificed, and he would go on your behalf into the sanctuary, and he would sprinkle some of that blood in the sanctuary. Now, what was the purpose of the sprinkling of the blood? And the Bible describes that as making atonement. By the way, it uses the word atonement for the actual sacrifice itself because these were stages in atonement. The slaying of the sacrifice was atonement and then the sprinkling of the blood made atonement because the sprinkling of the blood applied it to the individual. And of course, that goes for the world, world, dear friends. It has to be applied to the individual. And the sprinkling of the blood was what took the sin from the sinner and the sanctuary took care of it for the sinner and they were forgiven. So that was very important, that sprinkling had to take place. This is actually mentioned in the book of Hebrews and I'd like us to look at it because I want you to get this nice and clear in your minds, please. Hebrews chapter 12 and... Verse, let's see, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. And it says, To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. Now, the blood of sprinkling he's referring to there is what I was talking about, where the blood is sprinkled and applied to your life and to mine individually. So the full atonement is not made. In fact, it's not made until the final judgment, but... The point is, it doesn't benefit the individual until the blood is sprinkled and applied to us personally. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.16 that God loved the world all right, gave his only son all right, that you might believe. And those who believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. As you believe and reach out by faith to Jesus, dear friends, your sins are forgiven. And it's a wonderful thing to know that. What would we do without it? So then, who qualifies for salvation? Who is the best behaved? Who is the most righteous? Who is the most holy? Who is the one that can be saved? Well, who is the most worthy? Do you think that you're the most worthy? Am I the most worthy? Who is the one who is worthy? Only Jesus is worthy, Michael. Only Jesus. He is the only one. Praise God we have a saviour like that. Don't you agree? Now there are some people in the scriptures who would have been winners. And one of them is found in Mark chapter 10. We're going to go quickly through this. As the preacher is going a bit over time here. Mark chapter 10 and verse, let's see, verse 20. Mark chapter 10 verse 20. Now, this is the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was just that. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. Everything, all of those things designed to make him conceited and proud about himself. Um, That's the way he saw it. And so he comes to Jesus because he senses there's something not 100% right in his life, spiritually. He can just feel it. 
according to him, according to the Jews, being a rich young ruler, you had everything that was necessary for life and for salvation, but he was convinced there was more to it. So he comes to see Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And uh, Jesus says to him, well, verse 19, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, etc., etc. And the young man says, I've done this since I was a youth. He'd been a fine, upstanding young man. Jesus' response to him is quite a beautiful response, isn't it? Looking at him, it says he loved him. The eyes of God were looking with love and compassion on this young man. And he said, you lack one thing. In essence, he said, you're covetous. Your attention is on the things of this world, riches and honour. Give those things away. Give away everything you've got and come and follow me. Now, this young man was being offered a place in the inner circle of the disciples. Instead of being a nameless rich young ruler, we would know his name. He would have made a huge impact on the world. Instead, he probably perished in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and lost everything. How tragic, because it says, verse 22, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Dear friends, the rich have many more temptations than the poor, although they have their own as well. And uh, don't envy them. It's an interesting thing and it's a very sad thing. So this winner became a loser, big time. A very big loser. I'll tell you another loser in the, in the New Testament. His name was Judas. Don't underestimate Judas. Judas, in his own estimation, was a very smart man. He was smarter than the rest of the disciples. He was more talented and gifted than the rest of the disciples. And he was much better at handling money than the rest of the disciples. That's what he thought. The interesting thing is, the disciples thought that as well. And it just may well be that he was smarter than the others in reality. Do you know what Ellen White says about him? I'll read it to you. He was a man of commanding appearance. Right? He just, just looking at him, he called forth respect. You know, there are some people like that. A man of keen discernment and executive ability. He was the sort of man you put in charge of the conference. He, was a, he had leadership ability. He had a lot of things going for him. So he was quite something, this man. But he had a problem, several problems. She goes on to say his energies were devoted to self-serving, self-exhortation and the love of money. Now, there's a very, very volatile cocktail, folks. The self-serving, self-exhortation and the love of money. He was a man who could have been a tremendous winner. But you know what he did to himself, don't you, at the end of it all? Hung himself. This potential winner became a massive loser whose name has gone down in history for the great loss that he had. He wanted to force Jesus to become a winner as he understood winners by being the best, the greatest, the biggest leader. And so he betrayed Jesus that that might happen. But it was a disaster. He lost it all. The winner became a loser. I'm going to tell you a very beautiful story. 
by a name, about a man named Ivan Anaya. Ivan Anaya was a long distance runner and he was competing on one occasion, I have to be brief here, he was competing on one occasion against one of those small Kenyan runners. You know them? Great long distance runners who are basically leading the world in that area, winners, at the moment. And he was coming second, the man Anaya was coming second and the Kenyan was coming first. And suddenly, just 10 metres from the finish line, the Kenyan stopped. Clearly thought he'd gone over the line, mistakenly thought that, but he hadn't. What was Anaya going to do? This was his chance to win the big race. He could just go flying past the young Kenyan and be the winner. But this is what he chose to do, and I'd like to read it for you because I like the way he put it. He said afterwards... Oh, by the way, I should, reply, I should say he stopped and helped the Kenyan to realise he still had 10 metres to go and so he went and won the race. This is what he said later. He said, I didn't deserve to win it. He was the rightful winner. As soon as I saw he was stopping, I knew I was not going to pass him. That was his instinct. And I thought, well, that's a really good instinct to have. What was interesting to me after that was that his coach was asked afterwards whether he would have done that, the coach that is. And the coach says, under no circumstances, I'd have gone right past. Winning makes you a better athlete, he said. He wasn't impressed with his young protege. Well, I am, aren't you? With a man who would do that, I'm really impressed. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) It's true. You, don't, you can be a winner. Now, by the way, we know this man's name because of the generous thing that he did. If he'd won, we probably would never have heard of him anyway. And it would have meant nothing to us. It's best to do this. I think it's absolutely beautiful. The story of Nicodemus. Now, here's a man who could have been a terrible loser but became a winner. He came to Jesus by night. Remember, he was too proud to come during the day, didn't want people to see him. So he comes at night and talks to Jesus. Jesus tells him what he needs to hear, not what he wants to hear. It's a gentle rebuke, actually. But Nicodemus accepts the gentle rebuke, and his life is changed, and he becomes a winner in God's model of winning, and I think it's a lovely story. I'm very impressed by it, very impressed indeed. So, to finalise, how does God value people? Now, we know the world's values are pathetic when it comes to valuing people. How does God value people? Um, Ellen White makes a very interesting statement. She says, God values us according to our capacity to know and to love God. A person confined to a wheelchair can be the greatest person in God's sight because they love God and know God. And I just think that's lovely. I'm going to read you a couple of statements that she makes. Christ's Object Lessons 354. The value of a man, or a woman of course, is estimated in heaven according to the capacity of the heart to know God. Aren't you glad that God makes it simple like that? So when God looks down at your life, dear friends today, he's not looking to see the complexion of your skin, He's not looking to see the colour of your hair. He's not looking to see whether you can run 10 kilometres or not, or even walk it. What he's looking for is 
what he can see in your heart. Is there a capacity there for you to know and to love God? This only happens if we're people of prayer, you know, folks. When you wake in the middle of the night, what do you think about? Those are the best times to pray. There are people who need you to pray and intercede for them. Parents, children, grandchildren, friends, people you know, next door neighbours, the list is endless. They need your prayers. And those are times when you start taking on the characteristics of God as you intercede on behalf of people whom Jesus gave his life for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your vision of great people is people who know you and love you. I'm convinced that we can only achieve that kind of experience by your Holy Spirit filling us as we seek you in prayer. So I pray for this congregation that you'll move your Holy Spirit in the heart of every one of us, that you'll draw us to yourself and open our hearts to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all, thanks. This message was made available by the Stanmore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit stanmoresdachurch.net.
was Denise Barclay singing For You I Am Praying. Up next, Rosemary Malkovich will be singing Somebody's Praying. Guiding me 
the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple? Let me ask you, is your life complicated? Do you have one new task thrown on top of another and another and another until you feel like you're going crazy and one more will, like the proverbial camel, simply break your back? Well, I can help you because I've been there, done that. The first tip I have for you today is a simple one. Here it is. Have the courage to say no Some years ago when I was under a lot of stress and finding things really hard to cope with, I had a book thrown at me and I was told to read it. It was called The Courage to Say No. How glad I've been ever since that I did what was strongly suggested and I read it. I read that book as though I was a drowning woman. And so ever since, when asked by somebody to do yet another job, I often politely say, no, I'm not able to do that, and I smile. I've learned to never give a reason. When people say, oh, but you'd be so good at that, you could do it so well, I simply smile. I don't look cross. I just smile and say, I'm just not able to do that. 
and I don't give an excuse. Because if you give an excuse, or if you give an excuse and you say, I can't do that because I've got a little baby, or I can't do that because I'm busy with, or I can't whatever, and you tack on the last bit with an excuse, you're going to be asked, well, I'll look after the baby, or I'll help you with that busy whatever it is, and you can do whatever I'm asking you to do. I don't fall for that trap anymore. I just say, I'm sorry, I'm not able to do that, and I smile and walk away. That's the first tip, have the courage to say no. This will simplify your life. And ask God for the wisdom to know what to say no to, and he will give it. Here's tip number two that is guaranteed to make your life more simple this very day. Guess what it is? It's simply this. Learn to delegate. Oh, what do I mean by that? So often we think we're the only person who's going to do it right. Well then, if you want to go on suffering, that's your choice. When you give simple instructions for what you want to have done, then keep your perfectionistic nose out of the result. Perhaps, like me, you want your boy to make his bed. So you teach him how, then walk away and don't look back. If he's done it, but it's not to your standard, let it go. Lecturing about how a job is worth doing, it's worth doing well, is a lecture for another day. So if there's a job that you think only you can do properly, that's a clear sign that you need to delegate it to someone else. It may get done a bit differently from the way you would have done it, but you know what? The job gets done. And sometimes, even sometimes, it's done more creatively than you would have done. So, there's my two tips for today. What are they? Develop the courage to say no. This saved my life. I can promise you, develop the courage to say no is so important. And learn to delegate. Develop these habits and unload some of that stress from your back. This will free you to live a more simple life. Develop the courage to say no. Learn to delegate. So you want to uncomplicate your life? Then practice these two simple tips today. That's it today from the two-tip lady who loves to give simple tips to make your life more simple. hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. The movement had focused on Christ from the beginning. The early Advent believers asked the question, when is Jesus coming? However, after the great disappointment of 1844, they then moved on to ask the question, what is He doing? By the early 1880s though, the church had lost sight of Christ and had failed to make him the center of its doctrines. A spirit of debating had settled in and they were winning people over to the church more through debating and a theoretical ascent of knowledge rather than by emphasizing heart change. The 1888 General Conference session is the most famous GC session in our history, but unfortunately it's remembered for negative reasons with the questions often being framed, what if? 
It was held here in Minneapolis, Minnesota from October the 17th to November the 4th. And it was the 27th session held. It was held in the newly constructed Adventist Church that was located on the northwest corner of the intersection behind me. At the time, world membership was 27,000 and there were 90 delegates present, small by today's standards. Mission work in the South Pacific, city evangelism, amongst other ordinary matters were discussed, but no one remembers these. Ellen White later commented, I have been instructed by God that the terrible experience at the Minneapolis conference is one of the saddest chapters in the history of the believers of present truth. Prior to the GC session, the theological tension had been building with articles being published by both sides, something that Ellen White spoke very strongly against. Also at the various camp meetings, different presentations were given and a spirit of opposition, debate and bitterness was aroused. However, this would come to a head here in Minneapolis. The principal characters at this GC session were A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner, both in their 30s, and Uriah Smith and G.I. Butler, both in their 50s. As the two younger men presented their messages of righteousness by faith, they were met with opposition. They were presenting on the importance of the centrality of the cross and of Christ's righteousness and the importance of seeing the law in its correct context. However, one of the arguments that they used to show this was that the law in Galatians 3 was the ceremonial law and not the moral law. This was met with stiff opposition as some thought that the teaching of the Sabbath was under threat and would lead to misinterpretation and misunderstanding from other denominations. They were invited to debate and although this practice was common at the time, they refused to. They hadn't come to do that. A rebuttal presentation was made, but the only response at the next session was to read Bible passages in turn on the love of God. No explanation given, just the Bible read. The impact was profound. Many were impacted by the messages with S.N. Haskell and J.O. Corliss being two of them. The following year, revivals would take place all over the United States of America with Ellen White Jones and Wagner leading out, one of which took place in South Lancaster, Massachusetts. Commenting later on, Ellen White said, I have never seen a revival go forward with such thoroughness and yet remain so free of undue excitement. A few years later, Uriah Smith would apologize to Ellen White for how he had responded and would also make a public apology in the Dime Tabernacle in Battle Creek. Not an easy thing to do. One of the sad outcomes of 1888 is that the principal presenters of Jones and Wagoner would eventually end up apostatizing and leaving the church. The reasons for this are many and cannot be adequately explained in a few minutes. Some of the responsibility rests with them for not letting the message completely change their own hearts. Yet some blame must be apportioned to the brethren who so strongly and bitterly oppose them. 
This opposition would become a difficult and overmastering temptation to the young messengers. And whilst this does not excuse their departure, it does give us some understanding. A key lesson that we didn't learn in 1888 and that we still struggle with today is how to be a Christian whilst in conflict with someone else. How do you show Christ-like love when the person that you're discussing or debating with has a vastly different viewpoint to you and or may be treating you wrongly? May we learn to be graceful with those we disagree with in the conflicts that we have today. The church would move on over time and realize the issue that was debated wasn't of the magnitude that people thought it was at the time. So often we major in minors. Ellen White would say many times that the law in Galatians wasn't a major issue and that the church shouldn't make it so. Today it's easy to get sidetracked on other issues and miss the bigger picture. Jones and Wagner were some great preachers, some of the brightest minds that our church has seen, and yet ultimately they lost sight of Jesus. Today we need to be careful that we don't follow men, but that we follow God's word and the message that is contained there. It wasn't the message that was at fault, but it was the attitude and spirit of those involved on both sides. The message that they gave will need to be given again and God will raise up other people who will overcome where they failed. May we be part of sharing the beautiful message of the love of God and the righteousness of Christ to the world. To view more episodes in this series, visit lineagejourney.com. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.